0: Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are in our Linton series called Longing. And today's conversation is called, Where is God? The question for you to get started with today is, where in your life are you most wanting God to show up? Enjoy. We're in the season of lent and in lent we're thinking about this idea of longing or desiring that we're all longing for something i think in a lot of ways what we're longing for is god and i've always found it interesting in a community like ours that we live in a space where we feel open and honest to say sometimes in my life i don't feel god i have those coffees and beers with people in our community all of the time that in this space you are not expected to tie it up with a bow or to package it neatly and say, yep, God is working all the time and I'm experiencing God and things are going great. For some of you, it's, I don't know if I experience anything right now or what I have. I have three children. My oldest son is Caden right here. And Kaden uh, is, you're not supposed to name people on the Enneagram, but if I had to guess, he's a good one. He's a little perfectionist. Um, he, you know, is a good rule follower, wants to do everything correctly, wants to please people, that kind of stuff. He's also really cerebral and cognitive and asks really good questions. And so we're at dinner the other night and whenever, uh, before we eat, Caden or Bryce usually wants to pray and they're very like two different kinds of prayers. And Caden says, uh, well, first of all, Bryce always like does his whole prayer and then closes with thanking God for the hippos. Uh. (laughs) praise. So Caden is saying, you know, Mom and Dad, you guys always tell us to talk to God, but God never answers me. Then he stands up on the table, does this and says, hey, God, see, nothing. You always say that God's inside of me. He goes like this, hey, God, see, nothing. Where's God? And I was perplexed. I was like, okay, well, he's kind of got me on that one. This is going to be a little... It's a little challenging. You're five and a half. I don't know where we're going to go from here. <clears throat> and honestly, it disrupted me in a good way. He was saying a question that was so logical and that we've all experienced, that we've done that. We've looked to the heavens and we've begged, hey God. And I felt like there's no response. We've looked deep within ourselves and said, hey God. And it felt like there has been no response. And so we kind of like worked it out over the next couple weeks um, in a way that makes sense, hopefully for a a five-and-a-half-year-old, but probably not for adults. So eventually we got to things like, well, God's like oxygen. It's all around us. It's in us. We just can't see it, but we need it to live. And he's kind of like, what's oxygen? (laughs) (laughs) So that didn't work as well. Then we've done the thing a lot of you show that God's real in the world by reflecting Jesus. And he kind of got that a little bit more. Like when you show kindness, you show God, that's how God shows up. Um, But I realized that some of those answers are insufficient for all of us, even insufficient for a five and a half year old. And so in a lot of ways, it's my five and a half year old's question of where is God that inspires me for where we're going today. So we're gonna talk about some things. What we're gonna talk about was Caden. And then we're going to talk about the temple because we have a bejeweled cardboard temple in our midst, my friends. Uh, we've had it, you've brought it out once before. It ended up going upstairs with the kids, and now they've you know like climbed in it and done whatever. So, but it's back. Then we're going to talk about juxtaposition, and if we're going to talk about juxtaposition, well, then we're going to talk about love and suffering. And then if we're going to talk about that, then we're going to talk about Hindu creation stories because. Come on, it's Sunday in uh, New Abbey. And then we're going to close with pennies. So let's do this. I need to paint a picture for you that's really important. Like we're going to do like some graduate level biblical studies theology class right now. So if you are bored, too bad, I love this stuff. So the temple is crucial for the Bible. And most of the time, many of us, if you grew up in church, you grew up in church here. We weren't taught about the temple enough. The temple is actually this backdrop for the entire Bible and how the Bible works. Because what the temple has represented in the Bible is the concrete place in which God is. That is where God shows up. In the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in the Ark of the Tabernacle, between the two cherubim, it was ancient Judaism's view of where Yahweh rested on planet Earth. So that's incredibly important for your comprehension of how the universe works. That's not how our universe works. That's not how we understand things. But for thousands of years, this is how the forefathers and mothers of our faith believed God was doing and where God was, was in a concrete building. And so throughout the entire Old Testament or more appropriately, the Hebrew Bible, what's taking place is there's this kind of give and take with the temple. A third of the Old Testament is the prophets. And the prophets are all generating their narratives in a time and place in history around what is taking place in the temple, that there's corruption going on. That the story for Israel, that the story for the Jews is that there is this God who showed up and who cared for them in their suffering. And this God, like all of the other gods of all of the other nations, shows up specifically in their temple. Okay? And so, what happens in the prophets' books like Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah is that God is saying to them, You're missing the point. You, you're not malicious, you're not evil, but what you're focusing on are the wrong things. You're trying to do good religion, and that's making you poor stewards of human beings. Because you care so much about preserving the temple, you're not preserving your own humanity. And so there is God who is challenging the Israelites, telling them, I'm not interested in your sacrifices if your sacrifices get in the way of things like love and mercy and justice. And so there's a period of time, uh, 586 BC, because it's everybody's favorite date in history, where the Babylonians come into Israel and they destroy the temple of God. And this is a traumatic moment in the life of Israel Particularly, if your entire worldview is that within this building, within a room, within that building, within a tabernacle, within that room, within that building is where God lives, and that building is now destroyed, where is God now? That's powerful. And the Israelites, the Hebrews, the ancient Jews did something that no other people group has done on planet earth, anthropologically speaking. You can go like look up history and see this. In all of the other ancient world, when a superpower would come in and they would destroy your temple and they would destroy your nation, now you assumed their gods because clearly their gods are more powerful than your God. And in this moment, what happens is that ancient Israel does something incredibly unique. They begin to discover faith in the absence of their God. They begin to find internal spirituality when the physical, the concrete, and the absolute is all gone. And what's important about that is that's the story. Is that we all need to start with something concrete. We all need to start with something absolute. We all need to start with something that we can hold on to and touch and feel like this is the answer, brings me safety and security. But what happens, like any temple in our lives, is when it stays that way, we become to idolatrize. That's not the word. Yeah. Idolize. Idolatry. I speak for a living. It's no big deal. There's some idolatry that goes on with the temple. And that's in our own lives as well, right? is that we begin to trade, we started with good intentions, but now we care more about that than anything else. And there always needs to be a moment where the temple literally has to be destroyed within us, where we have to deconstruct some things, where we have to let go of some stuff. And it's in the absence of knowing where God is that we actually find God. That's the mystery of the faith. That's the invitation of what we're being brought into. Let me paint another picture for you. We have been in the Gospel of Luke for like 72 weeks. Get over it already, am I right? (laughs) Unbelievable. The Gospel of Luke is incredibly interesting for a lot of different reasons. First of all, the Gospel of Luke is the only Gospel that starts off with nativity stories of Jesus as a baby. Okay? And Matthew's a little bit different for a bunch of different reasons. Um, And in the Gospel of Luke, if you are a Jew, and you live thousands of years ago, and you have an understanding of temple of what I just described to you, where would Jesus be born if God was coming into the world? The temple. And what is blatantly absent in the early stories of Jesus is the, why? Because God is trying to show God's people that's not where the magic is at. And there's this whole journey in these early stories of Jesus where the temple is nowhere to be found. It's almost like Jesus is already challenging the structures of that day so that we can have a bigger and broader and more inclusive narrative of where God actually is. In fact, when Jesus begins Jesus's ministry, what happens is that Jesus is baptized in the desert by John the Baptist who was somebody whose parents worked in the temple. And so you would suspect and expect that John the Baptist was going to be in the temple. It's all like the subplots and the narratives and a movie would do this really well, like show me, don't tell me. And we would see these details a little bit more clearly maybe than we do now. And so you would expect that John the Baptist would be in a temple like his parents were because these were people who weren't able to have children. And so if God comes to speak to you through an angel at the temple that you have not been infertile for 70 years and now you're able to have a kid, where should your kid work? The temple, but it doesn't happen that way. Story after story after story after story in Luke, particularly in the beginning of that gospel, is all about the absence of the temple because God has shown up to earth in a different way. God has shown up not in the concrete, not in the absolute, not in the safety and the structures of this massive building, which is what we want for our own security, but in an infant child? who's weak and flimsy and flesh and blood and sweat and complicated and mysterious and has feelings? And where does Jesus spend most of his time early in his ministry? Not in the temple of God where God should be, but Jesus spends all of his time out and about with all of the people who were told that they were godless. What is fascinating about the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is always challenging the moral majority by hanging out with an immoral minority. And that's powerful. It's like the gospels, the entire Bible is trying to say, what you want on planet earth is security. What you desire is absolute. What you need is concrete. And the mystery of it all is that's not where you're actually going to find God. You're going to find God in the desert and in the wilderness and in the messiness and in the muck and in the mystery and in the figuring out in the journey and in the process. That's in your insecurity, in your brokenness, in your weakness, in your pain, in your suffering, in your hurt. That's where God's going to show up. That's a very different story than I think what we want, but we need that in a season like Lent. We need to be reminded that God does God's best work in our suffering, not on the mountaintops. And that the entire Bible, the backdrop for it, is a story of suffering and God's juxtaposing God's self against the concrete absolute of the temple with the true suffering that actually takes place as as a part of our human experience. It's there the whole time, but it's the canvas that the rest of the stories are actually being painted upon. And it's Beautiful. One more thing about the temple because I said I love this stuff and I like geeking out on it. Around the time of Jesus, after that first temple was destroyed in 586, it will be rebuilt in 530, everyone else's favorite year. And then around uh, the time of Jesus, around the year zero, uh, there's a guy named Herod and Herod will endeavor into a great building project and he'll make the temple mount even bigger and more beautiful than it ever was before. And it will be called one of the eight, it will be seen as one of the eight wonders of the world. There was seven because it was so beautiful and so magnificent. And if you're a Jew in Jesus's time and you see this temple, now you have security. Imagine that your people group has been persecuted for thousands of years by the most powerful nations and empire the world has ever seen. And so where do you find security and trust and just like hope every day when you look to that temple mount? that this big, beautiful building is there and that thing can never be destroyed, right? That thing can never go anywhere. And when we're in pain and when we've dealt with persecution, when we're living in our insecurities, isn't that what we want? Don't we want a big, giant, magnificent building that feels secure and it's not going anywhere that we can like get in and be safe? And Jesus understood all of this and that brings us to Luke chapter 21. While Jesus was in the temple, He watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Again, the Gospel of Luke starts in the wilderness where the temple is completely absent. And then where the Gospel of Luke will end is in the Passion Week of Jesus. And it will end in the temple. And it will end with because Jesus is constantly critiquing the temple is one of the primary reasons that he'll get killed. Jesus is questioning the concrete structures of this world. And saying, you got to die to those things. And those things got to die for real faith to be found. It's all inverted. It's all upside down. And then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all of the rest of them. For they have given a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything else she has. So there's this moment where Jesus is kind of like resting up in the temple. All of his disciples are there. Jerusalem during the Passion Week or Passover is packed 10 times to its size. And that people have traveled and been on pilgrimages for weeks to come to this temple. And in this temple, because Romans are evil and bad, you have to come to the temple and you exchange your money for temple currency, right? It's like going to a casino, (laughs) kind of like that. And you gotta get your casino cash and now that's the money that you're allowed to use in the temple so that you can do your sacrifices. And imagine you've traveled from all around the world, the known world as, as is known. And because you have been dispersed as a Jew over 500 years because your culture and God has gotten beat up. So when you show up to this temple, what are we all doing? We're admiring the grandiosity of it, the beauty of it, the power of it, the safety of it, the security of it. But that's not what Jesus is admiring. Jesus is admiring a powerless, broken, calloused hand woman. And that's powerful. Jesus is recognizing that with her two little pennies, right, that that's where God is actually found because that's where you need faith. These are pennies, by the way, for millennials who've never seen something like this before, right? This is like metal Venmo, okay, in case you've, (laughs) Yeah, ancients used to use this to buy things. It's a thing. And so Jesus is admiring her powerlessness. And then look at the disciples even. Some of his disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. But Jesus said, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished and not one stone will be left on top of the other. And you have to remember the Gospel of Luke is written 50 years after the death of Jesus. And so when the Gospel of Luke is written, the temple was destroyed. In the year 70 AD, a Roman general named Titus comes into Jerusalem because the Jews in Jerusalem were revolting against Rome because what they really wanted was for God to come back. They were tired of their suffering and their persecution and their pain and they wanted to do something about it. And so they revolted against the Roman Empire and empires do what empires do, right? And they came in and they crushed all of the Jews at the time, destroying the temple completely, completely ransacking it, and killing off all of the major leaders, priests, and government class of Jews in the city at that time. So what Jesus is saying is, is not necessarily prophetic. It's something that actually happened. And when the people who wrote the Gospel of Luke put it down, they knew that the story had already taken place. And the reason for that is that this story has a juxtaposition for you. That what the communities of faith needed 50 years after the fact What communities of faith need 2,000 years after the fact is not to be enamored by power in this world and to think that power is going to be our salvation. And guess what? I'm an American. I want power. I've had more money and I've had less money. And when I have more money, I feel better about myself. Can I get some amens? I love having good insurances, right? It makes me feel secure. That's called American power. You know that people live for thousands of years without death insurance and life insurance, right? I got a funny story about that, by the way. So I was, I was, I'm thinking of it, so I'm gonna tell it. Uh, me and my wife went to go get our life insurance. And uh, the guy says, well, how much life insurance do you want? I was like, well, I don't know, what, like, what do we need? He's like, do, you, do either of you plan to get remarried um, one day? And Chris was like, I hope you do. You know, I, would, I would want your happiness and those kind of things. I was like, I hope you don't. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you are lonely and missing me every day. And the guy's like, well, with enough life insurance, she might never need to get married. I said, great, double it. And I did, this is a real story, yeah. So when I die, feel free to go in Chris's mansion alone. And that has nothing to do with my sermon today, but I was just thinking about that. Because I think we want security. How many of us in here, in our lives, that's the thing that we desire the most is we would love for the job to be figured out. We would love for the relationship that we've always wanted to be right. We would love to be making that amount of money. And even though when we get to that amount of money, what do we want next? More money. We would love to feel safe. Everything about the American dream is opposite to this story. And that's the juxtaposition of it. I got an email this week from someone and every now and then we get this. And it was someone who I know is like totally trolling New Abbey and I love that. And and they're you know asking questions about like what's our belief statement and what's our code of conduct and faith and whatever and they didn't see it on our website and jokes on you our website's horrible. Um, our website is existentially representing the mystery that we see in God by providing no helpful information for your life. Just like finding the church, there's no signage outside like your journey with god it will take work (laughs) and some of you end up at like the church of gospel of christ church next door and i don't think this is it and (laughs) it's all intentional people it's all intentional how we do this and she sends this email and i know immediately that she's trolling and so i'm like okay and she's asking all these questions about what we believe and then like this about the resurrection and this about atonement theology and this about this and, and all my responses are oh, I would just love to ask you some questions. Well, have you ever been to New Abbey? Doesn't respond to that, right? Uh, Do you want to come here? Uh, And she's like, well, I have a friend who might want to come someday. I'm like, a friend who might want to come someday, (laughs) right? She wanted to get into a debate about gay people. All right, I already know what's going to go on. So I was like, great. So she's kind of, you know, going back and forth on all of these things. And I said, here's the deal. If you really want to know what we believe, please come and experience our community. And I trust that our community will represent the fruit of Jesus for you. And that wasn't sufficient. Because what we live in is a culture that believes that somehow if it can be articulated on a website, that's your beliefs, that's faith. That's not faith, that's certitude. That doesn't show anything about your life. But that's the water that we've breathed in Western Christian culture, is faith is having all of the answers, memorizing all of the Bible, going to church three times, doing a better job in Awanas than everybody else. Come on. That was faith. And what we see in Jesus is a juxtaposition of this. Faith is not the majesty and the grandiosity of your certitude and the absolute, right? It is not the stone temples that you can build. Your faith is when you have nothing that you come to God. And you all know this to be true. In my life, when I've experienced God in the most profound ways, it's because I have hit rock bottom. It's not because of my security, it was because of my insecurity. It wasn't because of my power, it was because of my powerlessness. It wasn't because of my strength, it was because of my weakness. Those are the stories that we see over and over and over again and they are constantly at odds with our culture and our world. And I'm not saying that those things are even evil because you know what, economic insecurity and being terrified about relationships and having things not figured out is stressful and it creates anxiety. But at the end of the day, what we learn from Jesus is, maybe the gift is in the suffering. Maybe the gift is in the process of not having it all figured out. And that's where the magic's at. It's been said that there's just two great paths in the world, love and suffering. And that if you've been on those paths long enough, you realize it's just one path, it's love. But if you love deeply, and if you love well, you will suffer. And if you suffer well, and if you sit into it, and if you experience the depths of what suffering will teach you, you will learn to love in a way that you never have before. And the Hindus have this powerful story that when God creates the earth, that God takes God and put God's self in each human being. And when God puts God's self in each human being, God also erases God's memory that this has happened. So that with each human being, there's kind of this like hide and go seek that takes place. That in the moments of our suffering, we look deep inside and we say, God? And God's like, me? <laughs> that's how the Hindus translate that. And it's powerful. That That's beautiful to think that where God, shows, where God most shows up is in that suffering and in those stories. And that's something I can't teach a five and a half year old. That's something that he doesn't need to know now. For now, God can be like oxygen. And for now, we can build some temples because some of us need to rebuild some things and need some structures that feel a little bit more absolute and a little bit more safe and a little bit more protected. But there's gonna come a day where Caden is gonna realize, like each and every one of us, that he will know that God is most real, not because of the shiny temple, but because of his own suffering and his own heartbreak and his own pain And that is something that none of us can teach one another. We learn and discover that for ourselves and then we share in that journey with one another. If you'd find the same three or four people in those groups and answer this question, where have you seen God in your suffering? Enjoy.